I'm Jerry Howard. And I'm Jim Tobin. Hey, Jerry, how you doing? Good, Jim. We've both been on the road a lot, but uh, yeah. I know you've been uh, keeping your, your fingers on the pulse of uh, the domestic policy debates that are going on here in Washington. Can you give our readers a little bit of an update? Yeah, sure. Uh, boy, it's, uh, you know, last uh, last couple of weeks have been uh, in fits and starts for the for the Democratic majorities in their, in their uh, effort to get a bipartisan Infrastructure bill that's it's been held hostage uh, by the by the House progressives for the last uh, let's see I think we're going on two months uh, and uh, and then also move the the larger three and a half trillion two trillion one and a half trillion dollar uh, reconciliation package that's the the, the social spending package uh, that the progressives and, and the president want so uh, last week there was rumors of a deal uh, between uh, between the White House and, and Senator Joe Manchin and. Senator Kirsten Sinema, uh, like like everything over the last couple of months, it proved to be uh, kind of a false start. Uh, we actually saw some legislative language uh, late last week that we had been assured, even though it was 1,700 pages long, is not the final product. So that's a little frustrating uh, from our, uh, our our perspective because there's some important things that were left out and uh, some things we have concerns with. But um, it remains to be seen. I still think this drags on at least a couple more weeks, uh, maybe even into uh, into early December after Thanksgiving. So uh, we need that infrastructure bill, something NHB supports, uh, but uh, but it's being uh, it's being uh, used in a, in a high speed game game of chicken uh, on, on larger politics. Let me ask you a question about the tax packages. As of right now, there is no. Uh, general rate increase across the board, or even for high-income people, there's only surtaxes on on the very wealthy. On the other <laughs> hand, there are changes that impact our members from a business perspective. Um, are we better off uh, with had, would we be better off with rate increases, or are we better off here? I'm sure you guys have run the numbers. Yeah, I, I think I think in general, it's <laughs> it's less bad. Than the original proposal. So what I mean by that is there's no increase in the corporate rate, yet there is a minimum corporate tax of 15%, uh, which can be offset by the low-income housing tax credit. So a mild win there for uh, for for housing in general, but but corporations are going to are going to make sure that they're going to pay something, uh, and then no increase at the top end. Remember, there's a rumor that high-income earners uh, they were going to go from 37% up to 39.6%, and they were gonna lower the uh, the income threshold, meaning more people were gonna pay that higher tax. That is also out of the bill. But uh, like I've said before on this podcast and in other, other venues, the uh, Democrats generally like uh, raising money on rich people. So this surtax he talks about uh, is gonna hit millionaires. Over $5 million in income, they're gonna see their rates go up. And if you make over, I think it's 10 or $25 million, we're gonna see Another surtax on top of that for a, a total. If if you're a multi-millionaire, uh, you're going to see your tax rates go up uh, by eight percent. The one thing, Jerry, that I do think is going to impact our businesses that they're going to extend the net investment income tax. That's a relic of the Obamacare days. That's another three point eight percent tax on all investment income, and importantly, I think that's going to hurt our multifamily members. Um, but it's going to be on capital gains and rental income in particular. Um, you know, right now it only applies to passive investments. We're going to see that move onto the active side. So I think that net investment income tax 
that's one that uh, I think is going to have the biggest impact on uh, on our members. We're going to we're, we're continuing to push back on it, uh, but uh, but also be prepared to help our members uh, know more about it as we get to the final product. Okay. Well, thank you, Jim. Uh, you know, we're really lucky today to have uh, the CEO of one of the major uh, plumbing uh, corporations in, a, in the world uh, be with us today, uh, and that's Trey Northup, the CEO of Wixel Americas. Um, it'd be interesting to hear his take on the economy, on the supply chain. What do you think about this guest, Jim? Well, yeah, uh, exciting, uh, exciting guest. Obviously, a great supporter of, of NEHB, the trade show, uh, the industry, an industry partner, a leader in the industry. So it's great to have Trey uh, with us today to talk about uh, all kinds of stuff that's, uh, that the company's seeing, whether it's infrastructure, whether it's supply chain. So we're looking forward to having a great conversation. Trey, welcome to the podcast. Jim, thank you very much. And Jerry, I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Uh, Trey, I mean, we look at what Lixel has underneath its umbrella, and uh, you guys are uh, up to your necks in the home building sector, that's for sure. Uh, what, what are you seeing? Uh, our members are, are reporting consistently uh, difficulty getting in uh, housing components, and uh, obviously with what you guys produce, uh, there's got to be problems with with, with, with getting their hands on, on, on your products as well. Uh, can you tell us, are, are you getting complaints from builders or uh, how's it going out in the field? Yes, yeah, certainly, Jerry. Thanks for the question. Maybe for some of our listeners who aren't as familiar with Lixel as some of uh, the products we go to market uh, with, we go to market with um, the iconic brands American Standard, Groa and DXV, and we do everything from fittings to fixtures um, and take care of all your plumbing um, industry needs. So um, back to your question, yeah, we've certainly seen um, supply chain issues all up and down the board, everything from logistics to raw materials inflation to delays with um, long lead components and third-party suppliers. And so for us, I think it really is a bit of the hangover effect that we saw from uh, from the beginning of the pandemic when everybody tightened their belt and, and tried to save cash because we didn't know what was going on. And then we saw a huge demand spike and then we tried to ramp up our factories uh, to really address that, whether it's here with our production facilities in the Americas or overseas as well. And so that hangover effect, I think for everybody um, is exacerbated by the fact that demand just keeps continuing to go up um, all over. And, uh, and we're trying to react to that much like everybody else. Do you see a difference in the problems with your domestic product and your imported product? Yes, certainly. When we look domestically, um, a lot of what our issue is, is labor primarily, right? And it's labor um, within the logistics supply chain. It's um, getting the products to and from our different distribution facilities uh, from, and then making sure they're getting produced um, with the labor that we have in our manufacturing facilities. Now, if I look overseas, it's been more of an issue logistically with containers and ships, and then also with long lead components, having those same issues as a lot of those come from all around the world. And if it's, does it become a catch-22 then? Um, you can't get to full capacity manufacturing until you can move the finished product into market. Uh, and so you don't get up to full capacity or, or are you at full capacity and just backlogging a product 
uh, in warehouses? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, right now, if we look kind of globally for us, our bottlenecks aren't really sitting in the logistics area at the moment. They tend to be because demand keeps going up uh, for our products. We can't react fast enough. So the example that I would give you is as we, as everyone really tightened their belts at the beginning of this pandemic, and then we saw a huge spike in the do-it-yourself market, right? When everybody was locked home, um, and then you also saw people wanting to migrate to different areas of the country and purchase housing, we saw a huge spike. And once that spike happened, we addressed it. Um, and we upped our capacities to be able to handle that. Well, surprise, the demand didn't stop there. It kept progressing even higher. And I think we've seen that over the last year and a half. And so a lot of it is a catch-up game for all of us in the industry and trying to figure out at the same time, trying to match the capacity to the demand, trying to understand longer term, what's that demand going to look like? Because we don't want to be making investments that we can't utilize two to three years down the road. And so it's a tricky game at the moment. Well, that's pretty That's that's pretty interesting. And, and, and then it's fair to say that that right now, your companies under your umbrella are all uh, fully employed and fully operational, despite the fact that the product isn't getting to market the way it should. We are fully employed, fully operational, and um, and from a labor standpoint, um, we're looking to add more labor, whether it's in our factories uh, or in our offices or in our logistics system, because we see that need. And I guess what's interesting to me when I when I look at the labor perspective, and certainly geographically within the U.S., there's been a shift right over the last year, and I'm starting to get the feeling that the labor market, this might become more structural in nature than maybe we had anticipated, maybe many industries anticipated in the past. Well, this is going a little far afield, but if it is structural, uh, do you then look to technology and potentially robotics to replace uh, human employees? You, you know, I think there's certain areas where you could do that, but I don't think it's going to be enough of a pressure release valve um, for our production, let's say, because that's kind of what you're focused on at the moment. Um, I think the ability to add robotics and the ability to do things using technology and innovation will certainly help us. They won't stem the tide for the overall demand, nor the investment that we're going to need to continue to make in people. Now, saying that, one of the things that we've done um, as a corporation for our office employees is we've gone to a fully flexible work arrangement um, for our organization in total. And what that means is the days of being in the office for a Lixel employee um, will no longer be the five days a week, may not even be three days a week, it may be remote in perpetuity. And I think that's given us the opportunity to tap into additional talent across this great country, where in the past, we may have been kind of centered in the Northeast, just based on um, some of the paradigms that we used to have. That, that, that's pretty interesting. Uh, let me shift gears here a second. Uh, tell us about your, uh, what are your most popular products with our builders and what do you got new that's coming up that's gonna get them all excited? Sure, certainly. Um, you know, I keep talking about the pandemic, but it's, it's really had a huge um, impact on all of us. And I think one of the things that we've seen um, significant growth in is our touchless products. Um, they have really spiked anything from touchless toilets to faucets and things of that nature. Um, so we've seen a spike there and we've got some of the best, most innovative products in the industry. And we're really seeing that shift 
um, into the personal housing market as well, and not just um, within offices and restaurants and things like that, because people are now putting cleanliness um, at the top of their consumer need. And this gives the option, we have certain products that are kind of hybrids, they can give you the opportunity to be touchless or use um, the product's handles as well. I know my wife got one of the, uh, your touchless faucets in our kitchen. It's, uh, it's not only more sanitary, but it's really helpful when you're cooking and you've got uh, pots in your hand and you want to get some more water in the, in the old pasta bowl. It's, uh, it's a really unique and uh, very, very handy uh, innovation. Yeah, that's great. And thank you for the support. Oh, no problem. No problem. Don't thank me. <laughs> I'm a husband. I have very little to say in what goes in our house. Fair enough. Uh, I know how that is. <laughs> hey, hey, Jim, I know you've been working on the uh, infrastructure bill, and I'm sure that uh, that overlaps with Trey quite a bit. Why don't uh, well, you yeah. uh, talk about that for a second? Yeah, thanks, Jerry. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, Trey, uh, as Jerry said, you know, we in the government affairs space, uh, there's a lot of talk about this big infrastructure bill that's uh, being uh, being held hostage by the the, the House progressives. Uh, there's also the the larger social spending bill. But but focus on the infrastructure bill for a minute. Obviously, uh, as a uh, kind of a, a, the end end phase of our our infrastructure when it comes to water infrastructure in particular. What what what's your what's your thoughts on on the need to improve America's water infrastructure? Uh, you know whether it's businesses or more importantly people's homes. Yeah, I, it, it is hugely important. There are more than 1.6 million miles of pipes um, that need to be fixed and addressed. Um, and while we aren't in the business of, of uh, putting pipes in the ground, we are in the business of making sure that we can help uh, lessen the drain on, uh, on that infrastructure in total. And that's really where our focus is, whether it's through our products that are easier to install, that use less water, or that um, eliminate the need for putting certain things into those pipes that you don't necessarily need. We certainly understand it is a, it's a huge need for us in total, and we look forward to being able to support that bill. Yeah, uh, thank you for that. So, so just kind of uh, exploring a little bit on, on you, you mentioned kind of efficiency and how people use water. How big of a market is that for you? Now, obviously, there's there's federal water standards and usage and flow rates. I understand that, but in in the remodeling market in particular, or the or the in, in the new home market, how how much of a demand are you seeing from customers for uh, more more efficient fixtures? So I think today what we see is it tends to be more geographic in nature, right? Areas uh, that are more drought prone, it's, it's more important. But what I will say is every consumer would agree that efficiency is paramount, but also so is performance, right? And that tends to be in our industry where the separation happens and we're very focused on being able to deliver both of those consumer needs at the same time. And in the past, if you look at the industry in total, you usually get one or the other and they don't come together. Right, yeah, no, that's that's always a challenge between efficiency, cost, uh, and and uh, and then performance. So, you know, Jerry probably remembers the battle better than I do with the, the low flow toilets going back, God, that's got exactly. five years ago, right? And uh, he can tell you some stories about uh, about a lot of the jokes that are running around about the efficiency of toilets in the, in the low flow space. Uh, so I certainly understand that because, you know, from our, our members perspective, uh, it doesn't matter uh, if the fixture was installed correctly. If it doesn't perform right, the first call isn't to, uh, to you. The first call is back to the builder and they've got to explain why. Nope, that's the way it's supposed to work. 
uh, and then there, you have an angry customer and that's never a good thing. Yeah, we don't want that. No, definitely but not. Let me ask you a question. You said it's based on geography. Is it not based anymore at all on uh, the market point? And by that, I guess I mean, um, back in the day, you know, five, 10 years ago, um, uh, it was very trendy uh, for higher end houses to be able to point and say, yes, we're energy efficient, we're water efficient. Um, but uh, entry level housing, the consumers were still more concerned with being able to afford to get into the house. Is that not any longer a concern uh, or is it still part of the, the, the equation? Yeah, I, Jerry, good question. I think it is still part of the equation. And I think the way that it is delivered right now is geographically through certain mandates. I think it's every, if you look at consumers in total, I think consumers in total really want to more efficient and be more conscientious with the environment. I think the question really will be around how quickly we can do that, not just in the plumbing industry, but in the housing industry in total at a price that every um, American can afford. That's interesting. Uh, Trey, uh, go ahead, Jim. Well, thanks. Uh, Trey, you mentioned workforce uh, early in, in the conversation about one of the challenges you're facing from, uh, from a manufacturing side, whether overseas or here in America. Obviously, uh, for us, workforce development is probably the, 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 one of the biggest components that we work on. Uh, it's probably the biggest long-term governor on housing production in the country. It has been for the last 10 years. And, and our economists see that move in, uh, in, in the future. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, what you're doing as a company to encourage uh, you know, moving into the trades or workforce training, or, or, or what, what do you think the future of, uh, of workforce is for, uh, for your company and then maybe for the industry in general? Sure, maybe I'll uh, start with Jim with the, uh, with the industry in total. Right now, I think what we're seeing is somewhere between every five plumbers that exit the industry, we only get two coming back in, right? And that is a huge issue. I think the first thing that we have to do um, from a plumbing standpoint is make sure we're educating the population in total that plumbing is a great place to have a career. Um, I think if you look at a lot of the surveys, they'll tell you that the average American thinks that the plumbing as a profession can't be very lucrative, and that is quite the contrary. Um, you can make a lot of money in plumbing, and I think we have to be able to get that message out, and we're doing that with a few different partners, and then also really investing um, with the trades and making sure we offer great opportunities for people to get in, to learn, and then to be able to move on as plumbers themselves, and so that's important. One of the other things we've tried to do um, to try to help stem that need for labor are easy to install products, right? For the do-it-yourselfer that's, for the most part, is educated enough to be able to make some of those switches. How do we ensure that we have the right videos to help them understand and then also the right products that are really easy to install? Um, if I shift gears for a second and I talk a little bit about our own labor force within our factories, one of the biggest governors on our production um, at the start of the pandemic was safety, right? Safety was paramount for us. And if you're in our plants, um, we really had to put together a lot of protocols that kept people at safe distances with the right personal protection to ensure um, that everybody was able to come to work, feel safe, and ensure that they were safe. And so as we have progressed, and as we've gotten better and perfected that, we've been able to get our yields up and really been able to see our output go up significantly as well. And we're at a pretty good place because of those safety protocols. Um, that our labor force in general and our plants are pretty high at the moment. That's great. 
That's great. Appreciate that. Trey, what uh, what can NHB do to help you uh, get your product out in front of uh, the potential market that our builders represent? Uh, what more can uh, can we do to enhance our relationship? Yeah, Jerry, thank you so much for the question. Um, you guys do a wonderful job today uh, partnering with us. And I think it's just really important, as I stated at the beginning, is that as we talk about Lixel and that umbrella is just for all of the builders to understand what great iconic brands we have um, and that we can satisfy all of their plumbing needs across the industry from a fixtures and fitting standpoint. And so you do a great job and this podcast is gonna help do that. So I wanna say thank you to you and, and to Jim, but one question I do have. And so I was recently on an international trip and on the way back, um, I had a lot of time on the flight and I, and I downloaded some industry reports and I was looking through them and kind of looking at the supply chain bottlenecks in housing. And if I think about how it started, it started in lumber, right? And we saw a huge spike in lumber um, not having it. And then it kind of progressed its way into roofing. And now I was noticing that the big outages and shortages tend to be windows right now. Would you guys, I mean, not knowing near as much as you and the rest of our listeners about how to build a house, certainly, would you say that those outages are kind of following the production timelines of a house in general and that we should be thinking, insulation and drywall might be the next big thing? Uh, that's an interesting observation. I'm not sure that I can agree with it uh, because as I travel, and I haven't traveled internationally, but I've been on the road a lot domestically, um, builders across the country are telling me they're having problems with all products all the time at this point. So the, the, uh, the report you're reading may indicate certain products and that would uh, seem, seem to establish a pattern, but I can't verify that by my uh, conversations with builders around the country. Right now, it looks like everything uh, is in short supply. Uh, and I have to tell you, uh, reading uh, President Biden's uh, agreement to uh, ease the tariffs on uh, European steel and nothing else while he was uh, at the G20 uh, last week, was disappointing to me because it's not just steel, it's everything. Well, I appreciate that insight, Jerry. Um, in some way that makes me feel slightly better um, because I don't have to worry about an increased spike and even more demand because of lack of products and plumbing because of the housing timeline. So um, that, that would, that'd be great. So thank you for your insight. Well, listen, Trey, it's been great to uh, have you with us. Uh, obviously, we appreciate everything you do, and, and you're right in calling uh, the products that you bring to market through American Standard and Growy uh, and DXV uh, iconic products. I mean, they're in, uh, if, not, if there's not one product from your company in every house in America, it's got to be pretty close. And uh, we appreciate all you do for the industry and all you do for NHB, and thanks for taking the time today. You're welcome, Jerry. Jim, thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Jim, it was great to hear from Trey. And before we go for the day, I'm going to uh, put you on the spot as I want to do it around election time. Uh, there are two gubernatorial elections uh, tomorrow that are being considered uh, very, very close right now. And I want your prediction on the Virginia uh, and the New Jersey elections, if you would, sir. Well, uh, thank, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, 
So I'll start with New Jersey. I think that one's a little easier. New Jersey has been uh, pretty, pretty deep blue for a long time now. Uh, I, so I, I certainly think uh, that, the, that the current sitting governor, uh, Democrat, will, uh, will win up there. Uh, I think that one is, is a little bit easier uh, to predict. Uh, the one in Virginia, Jerry, where you and I both live, that shows a very slight, I think I saw a poll this morning, very slight, but less than a percentage point lead uh, for, uh, for Glenn Youngkin, the Republican challenger. I call him the challenger. It's an open seat in Virginia. Uh, but but if former Governor Terry McAuliffe is certainly running like he's the incumbent. Uh, but so far, the Republicans seem to have all the energy. Uh, the issues of, of parent parental choice when it comes to schools are really playing big inside the Republican side of the political spectrum. Uh, I, I don't know if I make a prediction there. I still think Virginia, uh, especially in the area we live in, which is Northern Virginia for all our listeners outside of uh, the, the Beltway, uh, that has been predictably blue. It's the largest population center uh, and, and traditionally has, has delivered for the Democratic candidate. Uh, a lot of it comes down to enthusiasm on the Democratic side, so, uh, which I hear is down because uh, they've been pushing, the, 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 the uh, McAuliffe campaign has been pushing Speaker Pelosi uh, and the president to get a deal on infrastructure and the social spending bill. They think it would be a boon for his campaign. So I'm not going to predict that one. Uh, I think it's going to come down to the wire. I don't know how many, uh, you know, uh, absentee ballots or uh, or early voting, uh, which I don't believe has been counted yet. So I don't know if we'll know the the the, the true uh, the true winner as of election night tomorrow. So I'm gonna I'm gonna take a pass on that one. But uh, I don't know. It's a t- coin toss. Well, I'll tell you what. I will go out on a limb myself, and I will say. Uh, that Youngkin will win in Virginia, the Republicans. And the reason I say that is, and by the way, for the listeners, a Republican hasn't won statewide in Virginia in about 20 years. Yep. Uh, and this is being called the real test of the uh, of the uh, Biden presidency. Uh, and so uh, everyone in, in, in politics is watching it. Why do I say that Youngkin's going to win? Because only recently have they started to point to the New Jersey race as a, uh, as a close race to watch. And I'm with you, Jim. I think Phil Murphy, the incumbent Democrat in New Jersey, is going to win and win handily. And that will give the Democrats the ability to say there were two close races. We at least pulled one out. Uh, and they'll be able to uh, claim something of a victory by winning in New Jersey. And do, does that sound Machiavellian? Yes. But am I convinced that, popular, that politics is a Machiavellian game? I think we all know the answer to that. So I'm predicting Youngkin uh, in in Virginia, and I'm predicting Phil Murphy uh, in New Jersey. Nice, nice. Well, hey, I'm going to flip one back on you. Not any predictions, but but hey, tell us tell us about IBS. Obviously, we just had uh, Trey and and Northup on, and 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 Lixel uh, is is a a good friend of the industry. Uh, tell me tell me what what you're hearing about IBS and what and the excitement that's building. You know, registration is going great. Uh, we are very, very pleased with the number of people that are coming. Uh, I, I think that one of our leadership meetings just concluded in Houston, and the reality is the builders are just thrilled to be back together, uh, to be in a live education session and be able to ask questions of each other, not just the presenters, uh, to be able to talk about the products you see uh, by going and having a drink at the bar or, or going for a workout or in Orlando, maybe even going on one of the rides somewhere. I think the builders are excited 
uh, to get back together and that's being reflected in our registration and our space sales every week they're continuing to be solid uh, i'm not going to tell you uh, anything different we are we are thrilled with with the progress so far and we're looking forward to a very successful ibs in february down in beautiful orlando yeah i'm encouraged by uh, the, the the virus uh, seems to be uh at least the spike seems to be receding. So I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to, uh, to Orlando in February as well. All right, well, Jim, uh, work hard on this infrastructure bill and the tax provisions this week, and uh, we will talk again soon. Uh, probably not next week, as I'll be uh, pleased to join past chairman of NHB, Greg Ugaldi, at the Global UN Conference on Climate Change in, uh, in Glasgow, Scotland. So you when know, I get back, I'll have a full report for you on the beautiful weather in Glasgow in November. Well, I'm glad you're uh, you're going over there to to, to carry the uh, the the important work that we our members are doing, uh, building housing here in America, and uh, and and more importantly to hear, you know, what might be coming over the horizon as far as uh, climate change, and, and and certainly our industry is at the forefront of uh, building the most efficient and resilient homes in America. Uh, and and um, I'm looking forward to that report. All right. So thanks for listening to uh, Housing Developments. For now, I say goodbye. I'm Jerry Howard. I'm Jim Tobin. Take care. Take care.